You're listening to the City World Radio Network. High-definition digital radio broadcasting from the city to the world. www.cityworldradio.com Good afternoon. Welcome to Intelligent Talk with Ralph McElvenny. Join us every Thursday at 5 p.m. on the City World Radio Network as we discuss topics in politics, art, and current events. So welcome to um, Intelligent Talk. The website is intelligenttalk.com. We're going to be speaking with Josh Dean today, who wrote the excellent book um, K-129 about the raising of K-129, a Soviet sub, which was lost um, and was raised by the U.S., and part of it fell off, but uh, some of it was recovered uh, with a great cover operation saying it was a, uh, a ship for Howard Hughes, but it was actually a CIA ship. And this was in the early 1970s. And I'll let Josh um, explain further. And Josh, thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me. May I just ask briefly, Josh, what your background is? Um, are you from New York? Or? I'm, uh, I'm originally from, well, born in Maryland, raised, raised between Maryland and West Virginia, but I've been living in New York for 20, oh, over 20 years now. So I was going to say, I'm as, much a New York, I'm as much a New Yorker as anybody. <laughs> oh, excellent. And do you write for a magazine now, too? Um, I'm a, I've been a freelance magazine journalist for about 30, like going on 14 years now so um i write for just about everybody these days most often for bloomberg business week probably but um outside gq popular science um i've written for nearly everyone okay well great well obviously it's a fascinating story and i just want to ask you first of all how you got interested in this story and how you heard about it i'm it's not. I, I don't cover intelligence, but it's sort of a um, pet interest of mine. I'm, I'm sort of fascinated by the world of spies and um, sort of the black world and covert operations. And this is one of those stories that I was aware of, but I never knew much about. It was just sort of like, oh, there was that thing where the CIA tried to steal a sub and Howard Hughes was involved. And, you know, it was almost like a, a weird dream that I've had. Um, and, you know, people who are into covert ops, know about Azorium, but maybe they don't know much about it, or, or it's one of those things that's almost a legend. So I was looking for a book project, and I just decided to look around and see what had been done, um, and I felt like there was still a, a need for a sort of definitive take. And, and the more important thing for me was being able to figure out, are there enough characters alive able to talk to bring the story to life? Because that's sort of what I do as a journalist, and I felt like the way to tell the story was through characters. Yes, yes. But what I like, too, about the book, it's sort of a history, a mini-history of U.S. intelligence and the advances of the CIA, but we'll get to that in a second. Just one question. Was this the most covert money spent in the history of the United States, do you think, in this operation? Well, that, that's been said before. I mean, I, I've probably even said that, that I think that that's the case. I, there's no way to know that definitively. You know, unfortunately, the CIA doesn't put out a a ranking every year of their most expensive missions. I, it would be hard for me to imagine something that costs more money for a single operation. Like, I mean, I don't know what the total development costs were for the the, the Blackbird or over its operational life, but that but that doesn't really qualify as a specific mission. Um, it's possible other things have happened, but this is so big and so expensive and so audacious that it's hard for me to imagine something costs more than this for okay. a single sort of like let's go and do it operation. Okay, so fair enough. So it starts obviously with the sinking of the Russian submarine K-129. Do we know the cause of why it sank? Do we, we're not certain, right? Right. No, we, do, we don't. That's sort of one of the, one of the lingering mysteries of the story. I, I didn't address it directly because it wasn't relevant, relevant to the way I was going to tell the story. So I was sort of telling it almost in real time from, from the loss, from the American perspective. So it wouldn't have been important to us necessarily why it sunk. It's more important where it was, where it sunk. But that said, I am interested in that question. People ask me that all the time. Um, the best theory, or at least the most um, evidenced 
theory is is that um, there was some kind of accident that caused a fire in the missile tubes, and that the missile, uh, the, the fuel, not the warheads, obviously, but the fuel burned a hole through the missile tube, through the hull, which would have caused a breach and let water in, causing a sinking. Now, um, that that was put forth by um, a, the former chief acoustic analyst of the Navy, who actually looked at the uh, acoustic data from 1968, but, but it, there's no way to know definitively. There are other people who will tell you that there's a U.S. sub that collided with it and that there's been a big cover-up over the years. That's what the Russians think. Really? Interesting. And could you just tell us where about the sub sank uh, geographically? So about 1,500 miles um, north and west of Hawaii. So, I mean, a very remote area of the Pacific. Like, you, know, it, you, you know, the sub was based in the Soviet Pacific fleet, so um, in the Sea of Okosk and Kanchaka Peninsula. Uh, and it was it was on a routine combat patrol into a pretty remote area, um, and so not a place where you get a lot of traffic. Certainly not a place where you know when the accident occurred, it's it's very likely, almost certain that that no one would have seen it. And it was like seventeen thousand feet of water, or something like that, right, Josh? Yeah, just under seventeen thousand. So I think the Titanic. So. I think the Titanic was twelve thousand, and of course they didn't find the Titanic till nineteen eighty six. I think so. This was even deeper than the Titanic, and one of the ways they located it. And I just obviously you're better than the technical than I am, but we have a the U.S. has a system of underground um, sound detections, SOSES, I think you you call it. Is that correct? Yeah. So, so so another of these amazing Cold War covert projects was that yeah the Navy installed a, a network of high, what they call them hydrophones, are basically underwater um, audio listening devices, passive um, acoustic detection, and they're mounted to the seafloor in an arc. Um, in the Pacific and also in the Atlantic. And the purpose was to listen uh, for submarine traffic. So we, when possible, the U.S. and Soviet subs trailed each other. They always tried to maintain um, location site if possible, but obviously that wasn't always possible. So these things would actually listen for the sound of the submarines, and each submarine had a particular acoustic signature that was a combination of its propeller and the, like, clinks and donks and, you know, the way the, the motors ran so we could actually learn to identify the sub, and these things would basically transmit data back and say, oh, we think this submarine just passed through this area, so we can send a, a trailing attack sub out to, to monitor it. Or, um, And this was done, the Soviets were not aware of it for a while, um, and a lot of the work was done by the company that's now AT&T. Um, very impressive system. And then I should say that the Air Force then piggybacked on it with something called AFTAC, which was a, a nuclear test sensor. So that was a second set of sensors that listened for the splashdown of um, of Soviet missiles during ICBM tests. Yes, and I, th- I think the SOSIS system was set up in 1958, I think you said. Um, yep. Do you know how many of these, like, were they every 20 miles on the on the Pacific Ocean floor? Do you know how many of were deployed? Were it hundreds and hundreds or thousands of these things? I, I don't know, no. And in fact, I don't know even if it's if it's dozens or hundreds or thousands. I do know that the coverage was, was you know, fairly, um, I, I don't know if it's 100% coverage, but basically it, it provided essentially full coverage of um, at least the areas where traffic was most common. And they're, they're probably still there to this day, I would think. Okay. Yeah, I would assume that not only are they there, that they've been updated. And I, and I remember... Um, some conversation when the when the Argentine sub the ARA San Juan sank basically yes. um, when was that December or January um, there was some talk about whether the sense the U.S. the SOSIS network in the Atlantic would have picked that up and I don't know if um, anything came of that I suspect that's an answer I could find out if I looked into it but yeah so they, they're certainly still there and they've probably been improved okay so the sub sinks um, the U.S. we have an idea that it sinks obviously it's very deep water. And now there's an idea to raise the sub, and they look at um, deep water operations. And there's a man named Picard you have in the book who assisted Einstein. He, he floated a balloon, I think, nine miles high, and he built a sub that could go seven miles down. He's one of the people who specialize in deep water operations, correct? Right, yeah. He's a, a, fr- a, a sort of brilliant, eccentric Frenchman. I mean, the Navy had, had a fairly small but robust like sort of deep sea exploration program which was i mean actually very much related to sosa so they were like they were trying to figure out no one on the planet did much at at depths beyond a few thousand feet i mean submarines operate in the in the hundreds maybe down to a thousand feet there's a few soviet subs that can maybe go to two thousand but basically below that was considered 
useless to the Navy from a warfighting perspective. So it was only the scientists and sort of the, the big thinkers who were like, well, we, that might be useful to us at some time. And, and in fact, when the USS Thresher sank then, the Navy kind of changed its perspective and thought, well, well we don't actually know how to get to those depths to, to recover our own submarines. And maybe it's time that we really figure out you know, how do we operate at, at depths beyond a few thousand feet? What's down there? What what machinery are we going to need? And um, so, uh, fair, you know, the program ramped up to some degree. And it was from that group that the the um, technology uh, created the USS Halibut, which went out and located the K-129 wreck and filmed it and determined that it was in a good enough condition to salvage. Because obviously, you can imagine if it had, let's say, imploded into a, a million pieces, there's no point in doing it. You only want to do it if you feel like, okay, there's a submarine there that still has the important parts. And um, right. that program that grew out of Picard and, and um, Don Walsh, like that, that came from, uh, that eventually resulted in, in the technology that made K- K-129 mission possible. Yes, I, I think you mentioned too in the book Admiral Rickover, who I think President Carter had worked for, who was the father of the uh, basically the nuclear-powered U.S. Navy, was initially opposed to these type of operations, and the Thresher sank, as you said, and I think also the Scorpion, and then he changed his mind and became in favor, and then, the, as you said, the Navy then moved forward. There was also something called Operation Sand Dollar, which was recovering Soviet missile warheads on the bottom of the ocean? Right. So that they once they figured out that they could do things, that, that they could make smaller subs, submersibles, that had, like, arms and things that could, you know, early robots, essentially, uh, they could start to grab things off the bottom of the ocean, and, and particularly valuable were these Soviet, um, you know, they were dud warheads, but they had real guidance systems on them. So they were launching these ICBMs out into the Pacific and thinking, well, we don't need to get them, and the Americans certainly can't get them, but we did figure out a way to get them. We started going out and recovering them, and um, again, when the, um, when the Corona spy satellite program started, and we, we were ejecting capsules of film back from space, um, the first ones like fell down into the, the ocean, and again, we had to use some of these tools to go down there and get them. And the Soviets were not aware that we had any of this capability, and I don't think that they did yet. They obviously do now. And what was interesting, too, is also you, you get into the size of the Soviet fleet at the time. I think you said 250 attack submarines and 100 nuclear missile submarines. That's 350 submarines. I didn't realize that in the 1970s they had that many subs. I mean, I would assume the U.S. at its height, I think, had 600 ships under Reagan. So that's a huge amount of a submarine fleet, and I can see why it was important to the U.S. to try to understand the submarine fleet, given how how large it was. Right, and it was it was it was fairly commonly held within the defense establishment that the submarines were the thing that would tilt the balance, and and if war broke out, that the country that had the most submarines still operating after nuclear war started was going to be the country that wins, because you you can assume both sides are going to destroy each other's ICBM silos, and, and the bombers eventually are going to be located and destroyed. And, but the subs, as long as they can stay hidden, are, are valuable. So that, that's why this incredible cat-and-mouse game went on, and why, why we cared so much about locating the K-129, and why the Russians were dumping billions and billions of, of dollars into their submarine program. And we're seeing it again. Putin is doing it again, actually. And there's, some, there's some controversy today within the na- naval submarine world that, that that maybe we're falling behind a little bit because we took for granted that we, we won the Cold War and we did have a better submarine program, but we may have fallen slightly asleep at the wheel. Um, at this time, we didn't really know. And one reason we wanted the K-129 so badly was to sort of get a really up-close look at what they were doing technologically. Right. Now, I think you say that in the book that Nixon wanted Helms, who's head of the CIA, to run the program to recover it. Is, is that right? That Nixon picked Helms to do this? Yeah, you can, well, it, I don't know that it was it wasn't Nixon directly. It was uh, I think that the Secretary of Defense ultimately made the decision, but certainly um, executive branch would have been consulted. But the, the rationale was, yeah, it should be a Navy project, probably. It's you know who's better at undersea operations than the Navy? Well, I don't think anyone would debate that. But but the thinking was we're going to have to do this fast. We're going to have to do this quietly. And it's going to require incredibly audacious technology and thinking. And, and, and the Navy builds massive weapon systems. It doesn't really do things in a couple of months or even a couple of years. Um, it's also not great at this kind of, like, incredibly, at least at that time, audacious thinking. Whereas the CIA had this Directorate of Science and Technology, which had, over about a 15-year period, 
created the U-2 spy plane, the SR, what became the SR-71 was known as the A-12 under the CIA, the, the Corona spy satellite. And the core group of engineers and program managers who worked on all of those projects then migrated to this, Project Azorian. And, and so CIA, they say, you, you guys have been doing inc- incredible things. You built the, the U-2 in eight months. Can you go and get the submarine? And, and they said, well, yeah, we're not a Navy, but sure, we'll try. Right. And, and you mentioned, obviously, the um, the spy satellites and dropping the film, which was recovered by the planes. And you mentioned interesting things. Like, for example, I didn't realize that Francis Gary Powers, when he was in the U-2 spy plane, was not actually hit by a missile. He was brought down by the turbulence of the missile exploding near him. Um, it wasn't actually... Right. Uh, and I don't think most people realize that. That's an interesting thing. You even mentioned that the SR-71 would fly at 77,000 feet, and they would even capture bugs um, that were circling the atmosphere, and they would come back with bugs on the... And they, they were that high up, um, one of the things you mentioned. Yeah, incredible. I don't... You know, the, the, uh, like, we've sort of taken for granted how amazing those... I mean, those two planes alone, the U-2 and the SR-71, sort of created back-to-back. But, like, we still... I don't... I, I would argue that we still haven't built a plane better than the SR-71 as a technological marvel. And you know, I was recently doing some work on... Um, like the idea of like returning from space, skydiving from space, essentially. How would you survive a breakup from space? And, and some of the case studies involve SR-71 accidents. Pilots actually survived breakup. At, I think it was like Mach 3 or Mach 4 really? and came back to Earth safely. Um, it was flying up there essentially in space, just on the edge. Yeah, and I didn't realize the CIA was behind those programs. Obviously, I had heard of the SR-71 and the U-2. I didn't realize the CIA had, until I read your book, that they had put these together. So it really seems like, at least, I don't know if the CIA was, is, is, can do these type of things now, but they certainly could at the time. Um, their amazing ability to put together this type of program so quickly, as you, as you said in the book. Um, and yeah. Sorry, are you going to say something? Oh, I was going to say, yeah, I mean... I suspect they're still doing this stuff. Um, I, I don't. I, I would hope they haven't lost that capability. There was a period in which the science and technology directorate was um, sort of downsized and considered not as important. I, I think maybe my, my guess is they just assumed contractors could do this work, and they are doing this work all the time. And, and, and even in the case of all of these planes and with Azorian, the CIA is like the organizing body, the the impetus, the, the funding source, but contractors are still doing the work. Most of the engineers are on the outside, um, and I'm sure that that's still going on. You mentioned one of the things, too, from the spy program, that it showed that there was, in fact, no missile gap, which I guess uh, that's one of the things that Kennedy had run against Nixon on, that there was a missile gap when you said the spy planes, in fact, showed there was not a missile gap between the U.S. and the Soviets. Right, yeah. I mean, the whole purpose, the, sort of the backstory of the, the, this CIA technology initiative was that, I mean, Eisenhower basically realized that we were being outspied by the Soviets. And, and, that, and that makes sense because it's really high, hard to, to, to penetrate um, a closed communist, you know, essentially a dictatorship at that time. Your, your, your movements are monitors. Amer- Americans can't get in there. It's very hard to turn people because they get executed if they're caught. Well, flip that around to it's not that difficult to spy inside a democracy. For the most part, you're not monitored. Of course, Depending where you come from and what your background is, you're going to be watched. But it's pretty easy to turn people. So what they realized was that the Soviets knew exactly what we were doing. They had moles inside of our armed forces. We had very little idea of what they were doing. And, and you know, they kind of had this big, let's get the smartest minds in America together and tell us how we fix this. And the way we fix it is by using technology, because America is the home of innovation. And sure enough, it happened. You know, the CIA basically went out and located all the smartest people and said, figure out how to fix this problem. And they fixed it with planes and satellites and, and ships. Right. Now, you, you go into the book about now they decided to, to raise a sub, and they discuss various legal issues and also just morality and various things that w- were discussed. One of the things I found interesting, you said the Soviets had raised a British sub in 1929. I didn't realize that. Right. So, yeah, the question legally is, is it... Could we uh, actually recover it? Would we be within legal our legal rights to do so? And the answer was, well, not really. It's against the law to recover another country's man of war, you know, a ship or a submarine or something. However, if 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 it's judged that that thing has been abandoned, then it becomes free game. This is sort of with all wrecks and, and ships. Um, and and so when the CIA, you know, and I think State Department lawyers basically said, well, we, we, there was a big search. We watched the Soviets look for it, and then they abandoned that search. We can consider that to be um, abandoning the ship. And if they challenge that, we can say, well, 
you did this in the 1930, right? You you took a Soviet, you took a British sub, so you have no legal ground to stand on. You're you're being hypocritical. So basically, they felt like they were in the right, and then they had an argument to make if that if that ever came up in court. Do you know how deep or, the British you know, how deep the British sub was when it was raised? I don't, but it, I mean, very shallow. I, I can tell you that before um, before the K-129 operation, I think the deepest salvage in history was was like 250 feet. I mean, we like minuscule compared to 16,700. Okay, and then obviously they get into how to raise this, and obviously you, you mentioned before the Clementine, the vehicle they were going to use. That was a vehicle that was used for the K-129, correct? Yeah, they, they looked at a lot of ideas. They sort of sat around and, like, basically no ideas too stupid spitballing and considered, like, using rocket boosters or, like, floating it up with balloons. And there were just problems with all of those things. And, and the only thing they kept coming back to was they're going to have to, like, grab it to physically. They called it the grunt lift method, which was just something, some machine was going to have to just physically grab it and pull it. And they sort of, you know, came around to the idea of a claw. And I always say, if you can imagine like that, you know, the arcade game where the claw goes down and grabs the teddy bear <laughs> and you try and pull it up. Right. You know, it's like that, that, but, you know, times a million. Uh, so you were going to need a giant ship that was going to have to drop a claw at the long, uh, at a, on a three mile long steel pipe. Um, and that sounds, you know, maybe like a simple concept. It's incredibly complicated, actually. And, and then, you know, we don't even know if that works because no one's tried to do such a thing, but, but like, you can't just go and do that. You're going to have to do it in secret. Well, how do you hide a 700 foot ship from the Soviets? Well, you just can't. And there's, so then this, this is the sort of covert, the black white side where you have to come up with a plausible cover story. But, and just, just so I understand, um, so Clementine was sort of a big claw. Is that right? To use to grab the K-129. Yep. And then you, you mentioned obviously the, the pipe. I assume the pipe could bend as they, as they reeled it down and up. I mean, it was a, it was a special pipe that was flexible or how did the pipe work? No, actually, no. I mean, it was a tethered steel pipe, um, with, with special threads that would actually turn to, to full tension at like, I think three rotations of this giant wrench. No. So we're talking about. It was about as strong steel as you could possibly imagine, the same stuff that they would have made the old World War II batters, battleship guns for. And that was an issue, finding steel strong enough, because it's not really flexible. It's, and when, it's, on, when it's, um, it's lowered down through the bottom of the ship, so the, the, the gates, the sort of, you can imagine the bottom of the ship has these doors that open, like sliding glass doors, but they're also metal, um, and they're floating on pontoons. And then this, this pipe is lowered down from an oil derrick, well, it looks like an oil derrick um, with a claw on the end. All of this made out of extremely strong steel. But the, and then when you grab the, um, the the submarine, which weighs two million pounds, it's all be, it all goes under tension, and that's a very dangerous uh, situation because then you know the energy that would be released if the pipe snaps at that point is you know I have one person equated it's like a nuclear explosion essentially that that the steel string is going to rocket back up to the surface and probably shatter the ship or break it in half. Okay. So what you, what you have to do is you have to design the ship to sit still in, in, in open sea. So it needs to be dynamically positioned so that it can actually move itself to stay on station, which is like, you know, what we think of dynamic positioning today, it was done with like very primitive computers. We're talking like 16K and, and almost no access to GPS. And then you need the derrick to be um, gimbaled, like floating on bearings, so that in relation to the motion of the ship, it's still going to be stationary. So you can imagine, so you've got two things. The ship is like positioning itself, and then you've got this towering derrick that's gimbaled and sitting like um, like a Steadicam rig, kind of, when filmers run around to keep the, the image straight. It's the same idea. So that that pipe never moves and never bends and never comes in contact with the side of the ship. Any of those things would have destroyed the ship. And that crane was made in Germany, I think, right? The platform? Uh, parts of the bearings were made in Germany. They were the largest bearings ever made. Uh, I, I mean, there's a million stories of incredible sourcing. You know, like those things had to be made by this one German company. And, you know, like, like they needed parts came from all over the world. And, of course, every time you've got to, like, CIA has to come up with some sort of plausible cover. Um, but when they came up with a cover story for the operation, which was like, here's how we're going to explain this to the world. We're going to tell the world that it's a mining ship. And so when people say, that looks weird, what is that? Well, like, well, no one else has built a mining ship, so how can you say it looks weird? You know, and that literally came up to court later when one of the um, program managers from Global Marine, which was the main contractor, you know, he was asked at one point, and he said, you know, 
no one knew what a mining ship looked like. So whenever someone raised a question, we would just say, you know, this is a mining ship. That's our explanation. Okay. And yeah, and obviously that's when the whole thing, they bring in Howard Hughes, one of the richest people in the world. And they say to him, would you be the cover for this? Because obviously you're eccentric enough to go look for, what was it, C modules was the official explanation they were looking for? Yeah, they're called manganese nodules. They're like um, conglomerates of, of rare earth minerals that sort of develop organically on the seafloor. There's like millions, billions of them scattered around. And, and, and they are genuinely val- valuable. And going back to the 50s, the mining industry has kicked around the idea of going and getting them. It's just so expensive, and they couldn't figure out how to do it and make money. Why are they valuable? This conversation. Why are they valuable? Sorry? Well, sorry, why are they valuable? Oh, they've got... Um, metal in them? Of rare earth, yeah, rare earth minerals like uh, nickel and uh, manganese and um, I forget now off the top of my head. Like four oh, cobalt. Uh, okay. So things that things that are in, in, in limited supply on, on the surface of the planet and in almost limitless supply on the seafloor if you could figure out a way to get them. Okay. And I, I, I know, we don't even know if Howard Hughes knew about this. We know that Raymond Holiday, right, his aide authorized this, but we don't, we don't know if Howard Hughes knew, correct? We don't know definitively. I mean, I've been told by most of the, the program peop, um, leaders that I talked to that they all feel like he did. In a few cases, they felt like he was either, you know, on the other side of a wall or on the other end of a telephone. But no one actually met with him and talked to him. We know that the leadership of the Hughes Corporation and, and Hughes Tool built the pipe, and and his his lieutenants at least agreed to provide the CIA with a front, so they would be the ostensible mining company. It was Howard Hughes' ship, and Howard Hughes was going to go mine the ocean. And, I mean, it's brilliant. It was like, I always say, it's like almost the only story that would have worked because there really wasn't anyone else. There wasn't another company that, it wasn't economical. It didn't make any sense. It was so audacious and expensive that you needed somebody, and people would be like, oh, yeah, okay, I get it. It's Howard Hughes. You know, sort of like Elon Musk today, I guess, would be the analog, where you're like, oh, yeah, okay, who would start a rocket ship company? Well, Elon Musk would do it. That was sort of how it was back then. Okay, it's Howard Hughes. And it I was think brilliant. And, and the CIA, you know, sold that story to the world. And I think Hughes had gone, gone into seclusion, like 1957, something like that. And especially by the 70s, he was 100% secluded. So no one could ever ask him or they could ever be interviewed if there could ever be any kind of mistake because he was impossible to reach. Right. And, and, you know, he was known to be a patriot. He had supported CIA projects in the past. He was, you know, he was a fairly avowed patriot. And, you know, nothing about it stunk, which is why the Soviets believed it. And the Soviets believed it because the media believed it and the U.N. believed it. And and, and part of when the, when the CIA does this, when they create these um, white-black programs, when there's a cover story for a covert operation, um, it's not just that they come up with a story and say that's the story. They actually build an edifice around that story. And, and in this case, they had the, something called the Commercial Operations Division. And they employed scientists and, and business people who were, quote-unquote, mining company employees. And they would go to conferences and give speeches and do interviews with journalists. And, like, perpetuating this incredible lie that then you know, appeared throughout the international media so that eventually, you know, down the road when it comes to mission time and the Soviets are wondering, what is this ship? Well, they've been hearing about it for three years now. They, That's Howard Hughes' mining ship. Right. I, I want to go to the raising the sub in just one minute, but I first want to just ask you, right before they start raising the sub, um, there was a break-in at Howard Hughes' headquarters in Los Angeles, his Romaine Street headquarters, correct? Yeah, yeah, that's correct. And 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 then you, what's, what's interesting? You say the CIA then essentially violates their charter because they essentially they move in, they operate in the United States, which they're not supposed to, and help to sort of get the burglars. Is that right? Yeah. Well, this this is one of the places where the story gets a little murky. But yes, the, so there was a break in um, at one of the Hughes buildings in L.A. and some documents were taken and. It was suspected that one of those documents was a copy of the contract that sort of laid out the the specifics, that this was a CIA mission and the Hughes Corporation was merely serving as a cover. And so you can imagine that everybody panics and the CIA kind of like flies out to L.A. and the FBI is involved and LAPD is involved and they're saying like, we got to we got to nip this in the bud. We got to find this these guys. And it's a very shady character surface and, and turn out to be the burglars and they're asking for ransom for the documents and it's you know the details are still pretty murky to this day but what seems to have happened is that at some point the cia lost interest in the case because they either decided that the guys didn't actually have this document or they felt like they weren't credible or whatever but but this definitely 
starts the process that later will lead to the inflation of the program. But it sort of, you know, the sort of like bumbling crooks start this chain of events. And um, so that begins to sow a suspicion that the program has been compromised. Was but it, at the time, it, it wasn't. Was the CIA ever held to account for violating their charter and operating on U.S. soil? Did that ever come out like in the church committee hearings or... No, I, as far as I know, not for this specific incident, but certainly they were grilled, like put over the coals for for doing that with war protesters. And okay. yeah, I mean the church committee hearings and, and the you know the family jewels controversies. They, they were there was this this was all happening in a period when there's a lot of scrutiny on the CIA uh, on Capitol Hill. And you also mentioned when this is occurring. This is a time when um, Nixon is trying to do agreements with the Soviets, assault treaties. Uh, the ABM Treaty. I didn't realize too um, until I read your book that with the a- that Moscow was the only city protected by a missile defense system. Not the United States, Washington, but Moscow had a missile defense system that I think we had one briefly in South Dakota. But essentially, the Soviets had put a lot of emphasis into missile defense uh, for their major. They city. had, and I think they got it in place before the two countries decided that they weren't going to allow each other to do that. Uh, and, and yeah, then then we just abandoned our efforts. I mean, we're still struggling with that today. As you see, I think there was a there was a failed test in Hawaii this week. Uh, yeah, so the, yeah, the Soviets were. You know, I'm not sure that would have mattered a hell of a lot, but um, yeah, they 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 did have Moscow uh, protected in theory. Okay, so now could you just take me back now now to to go back to the sub and obviously um, they find the sub, they attach Clementine, they and now they're they start to slowly bring it up to the surface, correct? Yeah, so so one of the amazing things about this this operation is that you know it had all these disparate parts. Lockheed built the claw, Global Marine built the ship with all the dynamic positioning, and 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 the Hughes Tool Company built the pipe, and um, this the you know these moon pool gates, and there was a there was a submersible barge that actually loaded Clementine into the the ship, which is called the Glomar Explorer, from the bottom, so that it couldn't have been seen, since it was it was felt that the claw was the one thing that could have given the mission away, like. If anybody sees the claw, they're going to say, well, that's not for mining. That's to pick something up off the floor of the ocean. So they had to load it from underneath. So this is a very impressive, sophisticated way of sinking a barge and uploading it from the bottom. But anyway, none of this stuff could really be tested until it was go time. So you, you, you spent hundreds of millions of dollars. You've, you've had these engineers develop these, like, um, off the shelf, or not all, like one of a kind innovations and engineering projects beyond imagination, and it's going to have to work the first time because there's no way to test it. One, there's no time. Two, how do you really go and test it without giving the whole thing away? So basically, yeah, they go, they sail out to the middle of the Pacific through a couple hundred, um, and then they have to start hoping, hoping and praying. And, and they, you know, they lower the pipe, and things go wrong, and they break, and they fix them on the fly. And it's just kind of this like dynamic, incredible month in which they're fixing things as they begin the mission, but, but everything works and they lower the pipe down and they grab the submarine and they pull it up off the bottom using these like breakaway legs. It's all so from a mechanical engineering perspective, it's just, I'm not sure it's ever been taught now, certainly yeah, in the ocean. Now th- th- they start, and it works. Yeah. They start pulling it up and part of it then uh, breaks away. Right, Josh. I mean, how far up are they when, when, when part of it breaks off? About a third of the way. So they got about 5,000 feet up, I think. And yeah, so, you know, everything works, but there's this, like, fairly small malfunction, and it's sort of a tragedy that this is what happened, is that you can imagine the claw has fingers. Um, one of those fingers uh, snapped under the pressure, and, and I, what, what they think happened is that the, the load of the submarine shifted inside the claw, and that actually put a lot of pressure on one finger, and it breaks. And two-thirds of the sub, so the sub was in, two pieces, three pieces, essentially. The, the biggest portion, which had the most valuable stuff, fell back to the seafloor. Right, and one of the things you mentioned earlier in the book is that the Soviet subfleet was, and it may even be the case today, as you saw by that you know recent sinking a few years ago, That, but the, the Soviet uh, subforce was not very good. They were using like wooden beams to keep things in place. It was quite dilapidated, you mentioned in the book. So... Well, yeah, yeah, and, and this is, you know, obviously the big targets were the nuclear missiles and the, and the code-breaking gear. That's really what they wanted. But there was a secondary interest in, like, just getting a look at submarine technology. Like, what did their builds look like? And, and, and the Soviets, we knew, had been having more accidents than us. And, and part of that was because, you know, they didn't consider, um, I mean, I, I don't want to say they, they thought lives were more expendable, but certainly there wasn't the accountability for accidents like there is in the U.S. And, right. 
So we knew they had more accidents. We suspected that they were cutting corners. And, wh- and what we found is that when the, the portion of the sub that was recovered is like, yeah, like you said, they were like weird, like two by fours used where you would have had metal. And what I think they did is they were cutting corners. They were very good at some things and they were had limited money. So they were investing a lot of money in warheads and, and guidance and, and, and probably stealth and maybe cutting corners on valves and, you know, welds and things you know i'm speculating a little bit because we don't know exactly which of those parts were deemed subpar but we do know that they 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 found surprisingly poor quality in certain parts and and later you know one reason the wall falls is that we essentially ran their economy into the ground and i think what happened with the submarine um war is that they were they were just felt like they had to one-up us constantly and they were dumping money into this program and they were running out of money and this yeah this this sub proved one of our theories which was that yeah, they're not doing it as well as we are. Right. Okay. So, so now they get approximately one third of the Soviet K one twenty nine sub onto the, the the ship, and um, then they they find some valuable things. Right. They find a book that a person had written that was of some value, like a diary type thing. Correct. Yeah. Right. By a young, um, I think it was like a, a missile officer that was that, like apparently again this like this has never been declassified. We don't know exactly what was in it, but. Um, would have had some sort of things about firing orders or battle orders. Um, they recovered two nuclear-tipped torpedoes. I, I, th- I believe at the time we didn't even know that they had nuclear-tipped torpedoes. Um, and then, you know, sort of a lot of smaller things. But, but, but the, the, you know, the, the, whole, the holy grails, if I can use that tired phrase, uh, we did not get. And that was the, the, the three, um, although I think only two were intact, uh, ballistic nuclear missiles. Uh, with warheads and the what would have been the code breaking and the cryptological gear, uh, those those portions of the sub were, were not recovered. So, the, did they consider the operation a failure then because they didn't recover those, or were they happy with the, what little they got? It, it depends who you ask. You know, a lot of people are disappointed and consider it a failure because it came so close. Um, you know, my view is that it was a success. I mean, it was a tremendous success in two ways. I mean, one, like the fact that they pulled this off maintained the cover for five years, executed the mission in full view of the Soviets, including Soviet ships that literally came to the mission site and, like, harassed the explorer. Um, you know, to me, that's, like, that's tremendously successful. And the engineering did work. You know, the thing is, it wasn't an engineering problem. I mean, I guess it was a, it was a metallurgy problem. It was a, it was a, a part selection problem. It was, like, the, the steel that they used for that claw was probably not exactly the right one. Um, but all of the complicated machinery works, so it's hard for me to call it a failure. I mean, I think it's probably the single greatest feat of naval engineering in history, um, even though a lot of people don't know about it. And then the cover story is just, like, brilliant to me. I mean, that, that's so well executed, it's so plausible, and, and, you know, I have folders and folders full of news stories about Howard Hughes' mining program. Does the Glomar Explorer, then, does it stay there, and do they continue to mine to provide a plausible cover story, or do they go right back after the recovery? I've no, they were ordered back. You know, they, you know, the, the government was anxious to get a look at what they did get, uh, and then they wanted to sort of strategize and figure out could they go back. Um, so yeah, they go back to Hawaii immediately. Um, begin, you know, going through the the recovered portion. Ultimately, that that's boxed up and brought back to the mainland. Uh, and then the decision is made to go back. Um, so Project Azorian, as this mission was called, became Project Matador. And uh, they refabricated the claw using stronger steel. They made some improvements on the ship. And then the plan was to go back a year later and, and get the rest of it. Because in the interim, um, the Navy sent back out another submarine to look at the wreckage to make sure it was still in a state at which it could be recovered. And, and it was recoverable. So the plan was to go back. And why didn't they then, Josh? Well, um, a journalist blew the cover. Was that Seymour Hirsch? Is that? Uh, no, actually, Seymour Hirsch didn't. He he sat on it. So Seymour Hirsch, um, along with some others, was tipped off at one point that this was going on, and he right. actually went to William Colby, the CIA director at the time, and said, "Hey, I heard about this thing that you guys are doing. Is it true?" And Colby said. You're on to something, you know, I, I'm paraphrasing here. These are not exact quotes, but, but like, can, I want to appeal to you to sit on the story because it's too important. Like, national security is literally at stake here. You know, we could start a war if this is revealed. And I will help you out with some of the other things you're working on, like uh, family jewels. And, and Hearst was, frankly, was more interested in that stuff anyway, the domestic spying and things. Um, so, but the L.A. Times um, 
decides to run a story and it's poorly sourced and has a bunch of mistakes and it runs one day and then the CIA sort of scrambles the jets, goes out and says, hey, don't follow up on this. Don't report on it again. Bury it on the like age 15 the next day. And we're going to go out to all the newspapers that are going to see it and, and appeal to those editors and say, could you guys please sit on this? We know you saw it. Uh, and that actually works. Um, Colby personally appeals to like the heads of the New York Times, Washington Post, Chicago Tribune. All the editors agree to sit on it um, with the understanding that if it ever comes out in public, they're going to run everything they have. And he says, OK, uh, you know, I won't stand in your way. Um, and that works except for one radio journalist named Jack, Jack Anderson, who was kind of Seymour Hirsch-like. He was like a big towering figure sure. who felt like the government couldn't push him around. And he says, you know what? You spent hundreds of millions of our money. Taxpayers should know about this. I think it was a failure. I'm telling America. And he did. Right. Now, um, also, I know. I think you can go on YouTube. You can actually see a funeral for that the U.S. held for these sailors, the Russian sailors. That was done on the ship, I guess, right? Yeah, so I mean, this is sort of a testament to the, the sort of the depth and, and preparation that was put into the mission that, that they had planned in advance for, you know, if you bring the sub up, you're probably going to have bodies on it, and, and we need to be respectful to those bodies. And so they had recruited a Soviet defector from the Navy to, to help them basically write what a, what a ceremony and burial at sea would be like for the Soviet Navy, and they carried a Soviet ensign, and they had the, the, the naval anthem they played, um, and they had a sort of a service that was delivered off the coast of Hawaii. It was in Russian and English. You can yeah, you can watch this on YouTube if you searched. Uh, yeah, I, I think I, project even... Pro- project is Orient funeral or Glomar Explorer funeral. Um, yeah, and it was done with great care. Uh, and so the the recovery, the remains that were recovered, were buried at sea um, under Soviet colors. Yeah, I mean they they had the Soviet flag and they had the uh, ceremony. It was a very somber. And I think I read that they later showed the Soviets this ceremony. Like something like in the early '90s, they showed the Russian military the ceremony they had done. Yeah, when when um, you know recently, Defense uh, Secretary of Defense Gates, then CIA Director Gates, he, he was the first CIA director to visit Moscow after the wall fell, and he took them um, the the bell, the 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 um, ship's bell from the submarine, and a videotape of that funeral, as well as the um, coordinates for the location, so that if family members, for instance, wanted to go to that site in the future, they would know where to go. Do we know where the Russian sub, the part that we have is now, that, that one-third that, that we recovered? Well, it went to, you know, I, this wasn't even the book because I found out later. I know where it went. It went to um, sub-base Kitsap, um, Banger, Washington, um, and the recovery was done there in secret. Uh, as for where it went after that, like, is it still there? I don't know. And I, what parts of it remain, I don't know. I suspect there are some crates somewhere at some CIA storage facility with, with pieces. Um, I know guys from the mission have, like, mounted pieces of the hull. I've seen them, like, on these little desktop things. Um, and then like, the bell went back to... The, the bell was then put in the KGB museum, I think. Um, but now I don't know. Now the parts are a mystery. That's on, like, Felix Dzerzhinsky Square, I think, or at least that was the old KGB um, building there. Um, and, Josh, would you mind giving your website so people can find out, obviously, about you? It's it joshdean.com? Yep, I'm joshdean.com, and uh, the, the book is the, the taking of k129.com, although, obviously, it's available everywhere. Books are sold, I hope. Yes, it's a wonderful book. Are you working on anything um, now, any, any new book projects now? I'm in that stage of trying to figure out what's next. I'm doing some magazine work and looking for an idea. So uh, anybody has any great ideas, find me. <laughs> yes, well, obviously, this is a fascinating story, and um, it was a great idea for you to work on it. So, well, um, thank you so much for coming on the program today. It was great speaking with you, and um, thanks for your time. Uh, great. I, I'm always happy to talk. Thanks for having me.